Welcome to ICON, the show where everybody believes that everyone deserves a second chance in life. And that uh, music is uh, courtesy of my good friend, Matt Conant, a.k.a. MC. And uh, I hadn't heard that one before, seeing the video. If you guys can see the video, I'll, pu I'll post it as well. But um, got him and his beautiful wife. And um, man, I'm just glad to have you here today, Matt. How are you doing today? Man, I'm good. It's good to see you, Mike, man. I know... Uh... Between work and everything going on, we ain't seen each other in a bit, man. But you're looking good, and it's good to be here, man. We're, we're both looking good. We're both looking good, right? Oh, no, you don't have to tell me. I know. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's the thing. It's like, um, you know, I look back when we met, and, uh, God, man, we both got a lot of gray in the last couple of years. I don't know, like, what happened. If, like, the gray fairy visits us at night or what? Or we got real wise, like you said. We're real wise. Maybe. But we also got to remember, man, we, we ain't 20 no more, man. Even though it feels like it, I know both of us be on the move like we 20, but I'm 47 now, so. I, I don't feel 20. I don't, I'm not going to lie. I, I'd be happy to say I, I feel 40. <laughs> I'm hitting up 54 right now. 5'4". Still chunky up. Right, 5'4", man. I'm on your heels. <laughs> I see it. Let's see if I still got something. Up oh, man. Something. That reminds us not of that much. person. Hey, that reminds me of the first day we met, you know. Oh, what about hitting the gym at four in the morning, man? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember, so I, I was talking to Tony Woods, a friend of ours, and then she told me about Dennis. And so I called Dennis and uh, gave him like a crank call saying, you know, I had I was holding Tony Woods hostage. You better call me. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to offer. And he calls like, what, what? And I told him, no, man, she just told me about your deal. And I just want to, you know, give you my pitch about Icon and, I think it was the next day we, we set up to meet. And it was me, you, him, and Larry. Right in front of Starbucks. Right there. Oh. Starbucks. And with Magnum. Yeah, we had Magnum with us. Right. Magnum is a good Magnum is his dog for those that don't know, man. Amazing. Oh, dog. Yeah. Smart, loyal. Everybody's friend. Good looking. Everybody's friend. <laughs> right. And then, then we became friends and we started going to the gym at four in the morning. Uh, I, I would drag you and Lala out there and uh, you guys hung, man. You guys hung real good. Right. That was those good times. Hey, you yeah. remember when we went? And lo and behold, uh, not my PO off, not my parole agent, but the other agent was right there. He's a lifer agent, and he ended up going to the same gym. Oh, and that's I met right. Him there that morning. I was like, "Oh, you you here?" He's kind of like, "Yeah." <laughs> it, it, it was him, and also the um, not the San Diego sheriff um, who was the main sheriff, but it was his under. Um, it was the guy right under him. He was a tall guy. Right, I don't right. know if you remember him. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, I talked to him a few months back. And he got hung out to dry on a gun charge. So I say he was he was hustling guns, and he and this guy is straight as an arrow, man. I just can't believe it. And he had like one gun that he had, you know. <laughs> and it was like, man, you know. And he was all set up to be the next San Diego, sheriff of San Diego when um, the guy right now retired, and um, you know, he went there too. But that was kind of a trip when you saw that old PO guy there, huh? Yeah, no, that was definitely different, man. I mean, from being. You know, as we'll get into my my life story on the, on the opposite side of the law, so to, um, like to see him and not have that awesome you know animosity anymore. Or like oh, that's five zero, not really right. tripping, having kind of like a mind state was kind of different. So it was cool. It was cool. Like Daniel right. Dan, Dan, Daniel Witzio, I interviewed yesterday. He told me the same thing that when he got out, 
he went up and decided like he saw a, a cop over um i don't want to believe it was over where he moved back to ohio right and he said man i'm gonna go up there yeah, and talk to this guy and so he just went up and started talking to this police officer for maybe 20 minutes at the end of the conversation right. he shook his hands and thank you for everything you do i appreciate it and the guy had a big smile on his face and and he said when he walked off he knew he had changed because that police officer's you know ex-con or criminal radar didn't go off you know daniel held himself right. just like a, a regular citizen you know that's um was there just to be friendly and appreciate what the guy did and um that was kind of like his self uh, his, when he realized himself that he's really changed you know right well i mean you're big on second chances man that's what icon's all about man and i've always liked your vision from the day that you know but like we were on a fire a fire chat Zoom yesterday, which is a Zoom that we do at my work, um, and the the topic was uh, violent offenders. And so um, the thing is, this is kind of like the situation that you just described with Dan, like being able to walk up to the police and police's uh, felony radar not going off. It's like we 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 committed crimes and, and we can get into that, but um, we're labeled as a violent felon. And then that was when I was nineteen. I did that. And then here it is when I'm 25, 30, I'm still called a violent felon, a violent felon, a violent felon for something I did one time, even though it was huge what I did. I'm not minimizing right. that. But but you get what I'm saying? And we're, we're constantly labeled and trying to fight this thing for one defining moment, which right, is wrong. Right. And the, the whole point is, is that Dan did his, his rehab, his self-help, found out who he was, what made him tick. I did the same. So now when I'm out here, I don't get the same radar that 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 Dan like Dan said. Right. Like I have to tell somebody my story half the time for them to even know that I was who I was, you know. And well, that's, that's what we're gonna do. Is he and that's what we're gonna do today, man. We're gonna tell everybody your story, you know. So um, because when you know, just talking to you, talking to Dan, you're both very articulate, very intelligent um, people who have, you know, if you never told that story, nobody would know. You know, you you would never know you from anybody else because. That's not who, that's probably not even who you were then because both your situations were, you know, a little bit different than the norm, but that's definitely who you're not now. And so being able to give a second chance to people, I think, um, and Dan had some very interesting statistics and I'll go over them with you later in the interview. But, um, right. but so just, so, just so we can give everybody kind of an idea of what happened though. So let's start with your childhood growing up, um, everything that happened up until the point where, you know, the crime was committed and then we'll pick it up there. So just kind of tell us like everything that like your life up to that point. I mean, it's, it's a long story. I'll try to hit like some key points, I guess. Uh, uh, again, my name is Matthew Conant. Uh, uh, I'm 47 years old. I was born 11, 25, 72. Uh, I was adopted at the age of six months. So like I never knew my natural parents. Uh, thankfully I was adopted by a loving family. Um, that family just happened to be white. Uh, the reason I bring that up is is just for the storyline, not because I trip on color. Because <laughs> uh, you're not white. Like I was right. They're white. Oh, I actually, well, I, did, I, did, I did a DNA test. My, my Aunt Wanda gave me a DNA test, and I found out that I'm 48% uh, Welsh. Wow. 24% Nigerian. Damn. And then the rest are 5% of other African continents like Tinnambago, Maroon, Mali, and I got like one percent Sweden and Filipino, but anyway, <laughs> that's that's another thing. Like so you're mixed, you're identity. mixed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very mixed. Man. All right, all right. Yeah, just don't call me mixed breed though, bro. Uh, can I call you mixed up? <laughs> can I call you mixed up? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely mixed up. 
I'm, no, I'm X mixed up. Okay, okay, there yeah. we go. So you, you're adopted. No, but uh, yeah, I was adopted. So uh, you know, it, it's 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 kind of like luck of the draw. I, I mean, when, once you're in the, the foster system or whatever adoption system, man, I, I could have ended up with some um, bad people. I could have ended up in a closet. I mean, you hear stories, but thankfully, I was adopted by a, a wonderful family. Um, David Conant and Kathy Conant, my mom. Um, my dad was an MD. My mom was an RM. Um, they had three ki three kids of their own, adopted me and another black kid who was two years old, um, my brother Tim, and then had a, a, another child later on. My mom did with somebody else. They got divorced. So that's the basic setup. Um, growing up, I was cool. I, I was loved. I was had everything I needed. I was well off. But as I grew, um, my parents divorced at four. We moved out here to California, to Orange County. Um, around seven, eight, nine, ten, I started really um, recognizing I was different in the neighborhood that I lived in because I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. So um, I think that was the start of like some insecurities, identity crisis, which later, let me jump ahead. Um, before I jump ahead, though, let me make sure that people understand um, <clears throat> my family was was and is like no other to me. Uh, I tell people I'm adopted, but it's the only family I know. It's the only family I want. Uh, I want to be clear of that. Uh, like decisions I made in life, uh, it wasn't for lack of love. It was for lack of love for myself and a lack of understanding of my value. So I ended up drifting down the path. But I just wanted to say that because, you know, kids are, are cruel. And, and even growing up, you know, you get in a fight, like the average kid is, well, you're not my real brother anyway, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they'll, they'll just pop off with, right. but I never, I never got that. You know, my family always been my family until this day. So anyway, as time went on, um, bro, um, I felt these, these, you know, defects, so to speak. And um, it turned into anger and it translated into outbursts and things of that nature. So um, I, by sixth grade, I hit my sixth grade teacher, got suspended. By seventh grade, expelled from one school, sent to another one, then uh, ended up in juvenile hall for vandalism, and it just snowballed. I didn't, I didn't have, I had plenty of love around me, but not the right people that could um, hone in and really see what I was going through. And by no fault of their own, I mean, people know what they know, but um, I and I obviously didn't know how to ask the right questions to figure out who I was or, or what it was that was hurting me. So, I'm trying to speed this up. Um, I started fighting and started smoking, started drinking, um, all by like age 12, 13, 14. And, and then um, gangster rap came out. And, and I remember like um, Ghetto Boys, NWA obviously was a big influence. And because of my, my mental um, situation and how I viewed um, myself as an outcast, um, I naturally gravitated towards that. It was an angrier type of music. People say, um, you know, music don't have effect. It do, but I mean, not to the point that the artist should be blamed, but it definitely has an influence. Anything, any input you're putting in is going to come out. And so um, with that said, at that time, like mid eighties, more blacks started moving down from LA or different, you know, cities or, or whatever uh, states. And so I naturally, again, gravitated towards them. So I basically had it good. Like I keep it 100, I'm, I, I'm, I had it good, but I ran to the hood, you know what I'm saying? I ran to the streets. I ran to I ran to the poison, so to speak. So um, I just got indulged in that, and um, that just obviously progressed. You know what I'm saying? Without anybody to break the uh, the cipher of thought with me and my homies, 
it just um, progressed. And I wasn't from your typical gang, like a, a Crip Blood, uh, have a block, a flag, a color, this and that. But um, did you grow up? In, you grew up in Malibu, purpose. right? You grew up in Malibu. Did you grow up in the Malibu? West Side? Though, What's Malibu? Okay. The West Side. It wasn't like you were living in Compton or nothing. You, your parents had your parents are very affluent uh, professionals, and you grew up in a, 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 a four-story house. My first car was a Maserati, bro. Shit. <laughs> Even after causing problems, <laughs> you got a Maserati. Yeah. Oh man! Hey, look, but that's one thing I can say. <laughs> Don't let the cars in the house fool you, man. There's right. just as many problems in the suburbs as it is in the hood. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, um. So, so basically, it just, it just kind of developed, man. And um, you know, if you did something to my homie, I, you know, we coming. You know, it was that kind of attitude. And uh, I mean, it went from like fights to to bats to knives to guns. So it was a progression, man. And um, it's like again, it's not your typical uh, uh, hood story. I mean, you know, I definitely grew up in in a nicer place, but uh, the mentality was definitely hood. The, uh, the mentality was definitely poison, you know what I mean? So it didn't matter where I was, you know, you were going to get that same character out of me. And so um, things developed, um, got a little more sophisticated, if you want to say, not really, but as they say, you know, you grow on crime. And so uh, we ended up getting in a fight with some, uh, well, actually some guys came down and um, they, uh, from another city and they ended up bumping into one of my homies and, um, like jamming him up or whatever and then they took his wallet or whatever and um so we had been like he told us about this and we had been looking for uh these guys we didn't really know him we just knew it was a tall dude uh tall brother and so like to the point like we would be driving around and like see a tall dude and just scream out his name like hey and i'm not even gonna say his name just out of respect for his family i don't know if, you know and and by no means when, uh, let me claim this or disclaim this or whatever but uh even when I speak on it, I'm speaking so that you and the viewers can understand where I'm coming from. But, but by all means, it's no joke. A life was taken. He didn't deserve to die, as we'll get into. But uh, I'm big on that because even though I'm getting off top, but even though because my job, um, what I do, I'm getting way ahead. But uh, <laughs> it's all right. It's about it's about helping felons. It's, it's about helping uh, you know in, in system impacted people um, regain themselves. And, I, and I'm all for that, and I'm all for second chances. I've I've always tried to remember there was a victim in this, you know what I'm saying? So even when I'm teaching my curriculums or when I'm doing certain things or I'm at speaking engagements, I always try to be mindful of that, you know what I mean? And you've met, like, mothers with a message, Lisa Ortiz and, and right. them, and, like, you know, yeah. the victims. And, and we don't even like to call them victims no more, man. They survivors of the crap that we did, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, right. but uh, long story short, it, it went on for uh, a few months and then finally we seen him at a party uh, um, and we, we fought and, you know, I, I, we kind of got the better of him. Threats were made and we went out the next night with, with, with straps. So we had some guns, went out and um, basically it, the attitude was like, yeah, if we, if we see him, you know, we're prepared, it's whatever, you know what I'm saying? So we bounced around to a few house parties and um, the last one of the night um, heading home, uh, my boy pulled up and was like, yeah, uh, we just saw Wootoo. He lived right around the corner. And I'm like, what? Show me. And I, I had the gun on me because my boy had pulled out the gun earlier on, on another incident and I had took it from him. So I had it on me. And so uh, they showed us 
where, where he lived, he had just pulled up. And when we came around the corner, there wasn't nobody there, but we we're in a loud car. And um, so he, he heard the muffler and, and opened the window and I, and I bust three shots at him and uh, the windows just, just dropped and we, we drove off laughing, clowning, like it was nothing. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, I have no reason to lie. I'm out of prison. I can say anything, nothing's happened to me. Um, I, I didn't mean to kill him. I, I, I had no regard. I, I saw him in the window, but in my head, I mean, everybody know bullets kill and I'm not making an excuse. And this, but this is the honest truth. Um, I saw him, I shot at the figure, but I wasn't killing him for whatever reason, wasn't on my mind, number one. And I didn't think would happen. And uh, I don't know why it was just ignorant young. I was a month after my 19th birthday. So we, I buzz three times, boom, boom, boom. We bounce up out of there. We go to a motel, we chilling, partying. Like, like we didn't even did nothing. Like we just resumed program. And uh, so the next morning, how I find out that 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 he was killed was uh, I making rounds like, you know, what you doing today? What you doing? And I call my homegirl Grace, and she's like, uh, no, no, we ain't doing nothing. You hear what happened last night? I'm like, nah, what's up? She's like, oh yeah, uh, somebody did drive by. Uh, who, who got killed? I was like, what? Is that right? All right, let me call you back. Uh, and then I was with my boys, and uh, I'm like, man, hey, oh, you know. Old boy died. I'm not disrespecting him, call him old boy. I just don't don't want to say his name here. So they're like, oh boy, uh, old boy died. And so, you know, we uh just knew that it, it was what it was. It was on some next level. Uh none of us was like killers like that, you know. So so uh we all spread out, came up with alibis and, and went about our way. Uh one of my crimes was um he was at pretty much like in, in hindsight, speaking from a criminalistic standpoint, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, the police went to like the, the party that we were at because it was right in the neighborhood and started asking like, hey, who was here? Because they didn't know who, who shot and killed um, this young man. And so um, they got my, my homie's name and my crimey just happened to be at my homie's house and the police came by to like holler at him, some detectives. And he was acting all nervous and they honed in on it. And, and he just gave everything up. Um, and so we were all wanted. We all ended up turning ourselves in. Like they knew who we was, what the story was. I tried to ride the beef. Orange County split the case. Uh, <clears throat> they felt because it was a drive-by, it was premeditated. It was dead bang. They wouldn't offer me any deal. I took a deal. I knew what I did. I was like, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but they offered 25 to life. So I was like, well, I ain't got nothing to lose. Let's go to trial. I went to trial. They separated. Um, all my defendants. Um, however, one of my defendants went state. He got like seven years and, and and gave up all the information on us. So it wasn't really a trial about innocence. It was a <clears throat> excuse me. It was a trial about what degree of uh, guilt I was guilty of. And so I went to trial, and the jury came back with second. The judge, DA, everybody was mad. Um, they thought it was for sure uh, first degree. And then after I had been found guilty, um, all of my crimes took deals. Um, they took deals for life. So three of us um, ended up with life sentences and one ended up with uh, like seven years, did like three and a half or something for uh, going state wow. or whatever. And we were shipped off to prison. So uh, it so was, you it got, was you that got, quick. But you got 25 to life for a second degree? Yeah. No, no, no. I had... I had 15 to, my actual sentence was 15 to life 
okay. plus five for the gun enhancement, gotcha. and they 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 categorize it as twenty to life with a second. Okay, twenty life. Okay, gotcha. Which is but still, I served still, 45. but that's still a heavy. That's still a heavy sentence for a second degree, right? Comparatively speaking. Well, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's. I don't want to go down this road, but in the court, like second degree is not supposed to carry life. Like it was never meant mm. to carry a life sentence. But, right. Um, that's another story. So right. The way certain bills were passed that was underhandedly passed and it became a life sentence. But uh, I forgot the question. Like, oh, well, so did I. <laughs> I think we were talking about what, what happened. So you, um, you, you know, that happened, you got sentenced and then, you know, right. when you hit the gate, so, so tell us like for the time when you hit the gate going in, mm-hmm. you know, what was it like? And, and, and then being well, there, like, I, the politics and then when did you become introduced to Christ? Like, when did that happen? Okay. Well, well, my thing was this, like my, 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 what I had learned through the life that I lived, um, the people that were in my life, not, not my family, my I'm never really speaking about my family. I'm speaking more about who I associated with when I left the house um, and the way that I live. I, I had adopted like smoking weed and drinking as a coping mechanism and, and violence became the defense mechanism. I think early on when I hit my teacher, I learned that violence is feared and respected. And like when I came back to school, even the students were like, man, this bull crazy. You know what I mean? And I kind of, I kind of fed off that. So, um, when I, I came to prison, um, I had never did jail time. <clears throat> I did juvenile hall, YA, group homes. But So when I'm in the county jail preparing for prison, everybody's telling me the stories. But now keep in mind, I'm, I'm black. I roll with the blacks. I'm not a crip. I'm not a blood. So I'm, I'm not 415. I'm going in there as a non-affiliate. So I, all I know is I'm 19. I got life. And at that time, the political climate, as you probably talked to Dan, who was life without, uh, wasn't nobody coming home. Like life meant life. Like the governor said, if you took a body, we're keeping your body. Like they were just blatant about it. And it was a, a blanket policy where nobody was going home. And that was the era where they were building all the prisons and California became like this big uh, prison state. And, and so uh, basically I hopped off the bus and they handed me a roll of toilet paper and two bars of soap and pointed to a cell like that's your cell survive like there's no handbook nobody holds your hand <laughs> nobody laces you if you got homies they're gonna tell you what's up they're gonna lace you they're gonna come through give you a care package whatever the deal is but for me it was just kind of walking in that cell and then it was just school it was it was education time man and i watched and i learned and i asked questions to those who i thought was cool um i was never um pressed up on in the sense like uh, uh, somebody trying to punk me, but I was pressed up on in terms of I knew dudes were trying to recruit me, man, different blood gangs, different crip gangs, um, different political gangs. And so uh, I just veered away from that, man. And and so my approach was, like I said, the only two things I knew was really getting high in violence. Those were my two like defense mechanisms for stress or for uh, disrespect or whatever I felt. So that's that's the line I took. I was gonna die in prison. I'm a I'm a convicted felon. Well, I'm gonna be the best felon I could be, and I'm the only dude from where I'm from. So I just started knocking dudes out, man. And somehow I didn't get somehow, bro. I swear to you, <laughs> I did all my time on a level. I did all my time on a level four. Like I, I done knocked out Crips and Bloods, and I should have been packed out. But I think, in hindsight, and and humbly, I think my personality in some way saved me. Because I've even despite the fact of, of making bad decisions, of hurting people, of going to prison, uh, 
uh, facing hard times. I somehow, you know, the Lord, even before I, I was in love with him, he kept a piece of me uh, away from the world. And I think that piece is what got me through my prison sentence. It was, it was a, a might sound corny, but there was a part of me that, that nobody was allowed to touch. And I think that part would come out sometimes and people would see the genuineness. And I say that humbly. Um, I'm just, I was kind of easygoing guy, like you said. Um, earlier, you kind of alluded to it. Um, I was never that guy, you know, Mr. Killer Killer. I was never that. But because of the defects I had and the things I had to put on myself that I felt I needed to survive, you know, I'm adding alcohol to my arsenal, weed, aggression, the way the homie does this. I'm always looking outside myself to add weaponry to, to help me deal with this thing called life. But the more I did it, the less and less myself I became. You know what I'm saying? So it was a process I didn't even see happening. So the further I went, the further I got away from myself. And I just reached, I reached dark points, man. Uh, you, you wouldn't see it on my face, but there were so many hopeless nights, so many hopeless situations, scary situations, like knowing that the door gonna crack and, and everybody got knives and everybody pissed off at everybody in the same situation and it's on. And, and you just kind of like the night before, you know, they're going to crack the doors and you're just waiting and you're running all these scenarios through your head. What could happen? And uh, so just just doing time period, it was tough. But um, yeah, I, yeah, anything specific? I mean, because 25 years, I, I'll just be rambling on. Uh, well, no, so, stories, so you're man. in there and, and you're, you're dealing with the you, you managed to elude the politics. Um, but so how did you how did you come to your faith? You know, what, what what took you to that point where you just decided, like, went from hopelessness to hope? Um, and then when did you get involved with music? Like, was were you musical, musically inclined when you were a kid? Did it happen when you were in prison? Did you yeah. always like music, but you started becoming musical when you were in prison? Like, how did, how did that happen? The music and, and the way, you know, God, not... God changed your life. <clears throat> right. So, uh, it's, it's I, I've always been into music. Uh, I used to always like my mom had a stupid dope record collection, man. And it was eclectic. It was everything from R&B, country, rock and roll. And so it gave me a wide variety of music that I really liked. Um, and I always loved words. I mean, the power of words that you know, they can deal, they can lift, they can destroy, they can end war, start wars, you know. Um, I couldn't have described it like that back then, but I just loved the power of words and expression. So I was into poems. Poems turned into rap as soon as like Run DMC was out. I'm like, oh man, I can do this. I already write poems. And so I, I, I was a rapper. Um, uh, then, uh, so, so doing time, um, you know, I was, I'd rap gangster rap. I rapped, uh, I got a bunch of prison raps. I got, I got like probably like 250 songs that are, are pretty dope and, and emotional, but the content ain't what I'm about. It's, it's poison. It's, it's nothing I would release, but, uh, no, I had a whole bunch of music. Um, so th the thing is this, is that in a hopeless situation, all I had to grasp onto was hopelessness. And in everything I look around, all I see is hopelessness. I'm in a situation where, um, by my own doing, but uh, on a yard full of dudes who have these same, these same problems. Like, I didn't become, I'm gonna get a little off, but I wanna share something with you. I didn't become a killer like that night. I, like that crime didn't even happen that night. Like the thing that I was able to do to really find myself is to be able to go back to really ask myself what my life story is and, and ask why was I mad? Because of this. Well, why did that happen? Because of this. And go until I cannot ask another why. Mm 
and find out the root of this. So like, I had to go way back um, and dig in because the fact that I had issues, I had drug problems and none of these were corrected, this series of uncorrected mistakes made it so that I could even be a dude that had a gun that night willing to shoot into a house. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So I had to go back. I had to go back. And and that's the thing. Like I'm in a world in a prison full of guys with the same problem that know that they're pissed and got the physical ability to to like slice your throat and cut your face open and throw you over a tear, but they don't even know why they mad. Because they had no one to be able to take them through the same thing. And that's the cycle that we all got caught up in. So while I'm sitting in here 19, 20, 21, 25, 30 something, 36, and these decades are flying by, you know, um, I'm watching some of the saddest stuff I ever seen. Like, bro, like for real, dudes I know overdosing, dudes I know jumping, hanging themselves, jumping off tears, taking medication till they're just like zombies walking around the yard with a glazed look on their face. Like I, I saw so much bad stuff. Um, it, it's beyond, it's beyond worse. To the point, I, I, I was assaulted by police out here. I was tortured by police in, in prison. Um, was I innocent? No, I got into it with the police. But once I'm cuffed up, like, you know, so they, they take advantage of certain situations. But so anyway, it was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of hopelessness. Um, I did eight years total in solitary confinement to the shoes um, just because I, I didn't care. I didn't see hope. Um, so let me bring it up. Um, there's a lot that happened, but um, I was in the hole in 2006, 2006 in Salinas Valley for assault on the police. And um, so I, I go to the hole and I write my mom a letter and um, I ask for, you know, some money and whatnot so I can go to the store because you don't get your property in, in the hole. And she writes me back. She's like, look, man, we love you, man. Like, we visit you, we travel up and down. Like, there's not a pen my mom didn't go to. Uh, accept your calls, this, that. Like, ran a list off. And then she sent me the money I asked for. But she's like, what more can we do? And that letter, for whatever reason, even though she'd been telling me this stuff my whole life, my mind or my heart was finally open to it. Like, the seed finally broke through the surface. And I, I really was like, right, she's right. Every time I'm in trouble, I run home. My homies ain't around, ain't nobody around. And I started really like sitting in that hole because I knew I'd be coming out soon. And I replayed everything I've been through, who I hung with, what I rode for, why was I mad? And started really asking these questions. Because the thing is this, bro. Okay, let me tell you, two things happened to me. Um, and I don't know why I remember them, Mike, when I was like 20 and 21. And I don't remember the situation, but two older cats, like one was, it, like looked like us, right? How you talking about the gray? <laughs> Handsome. It was like two older dudes. Right. Well, that part too. But uh, so I was doing something. I was probably making the spot hot, running around, drug, getting the police attention. And and he's like, hey youngster, one day these walls gonna catch up to you. One day these walls gonna press in on you. And I'm like, man, and I, you know, I I, I cuss badly back then. I'm like, mother, I ain't trying to hear that woo 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 woo. Like, get that away. And then like a year later, Another dude asked me, I don't remember the circumstance, but he said, if you died today, youngster, what proof would you have of your existence? And I, I know I, I forget my answer, but I'm like, I ain't trying to hear that old philosophical, sh get that out of here, whatever. But as I'm sitting in the cell in 2006, like 15 years later or something, 
when I was 15, probably about 10 years later, my mom writes me this letter and I start thinking about this. And these two things, I don't know why, I don't even remember what these dudes looked like, but these two questions came into my head and my walls closed in. Like I never knew what he meant by that. And this might not even be what he meant by that, but I remember him saying that and I remember the walls closing in. And when I say that, I sat there and I was like 36 years old, bro. And I was sitting in the hole. It, you know, prison, you, you don't get to wear your own boxers unless you know you, you buy your own stuff. So I'm sitting in the hole with some brown looking stained boxers, probably 200 people wore. I got some shower <laughs> shoes on. I ain't got no clothes. I'm looking at my little shelves in, my ho in the hole. I got a couple soups somebody sent me. I got in my property in r and R. I got a TV, a sweatsuit, some stuff I can't have. But out of 36 years of living, this is what hit me, bro. And this is when the walls closed in. Out of 36 years of living, out of 36 years of my friends, my choices, good and bad, who I led in my life, everything, this was the totality of 36 years living, me sitting in this cell with somebody else's drawers on, you know, with nothing to show. Everything I possessed in this world out of 36 years of my decisions was like a clear TV that other people buy me. I didn't have no money. My mom sent me a TV. I got some clothes. That's all I had. And then the question hit me, you know, what proof do you have of your existence? And I'm so glad. I don't know how I remember those, those two things, but I look back metaphorically or hypothetically or whatever the word is like, okay, what proof do I have? What, what footprint have I left? And I wasn't speaking this way back then. I'm more articulate with it now, right. but, but it, the same ideas was going through my head. And it was a wave of destruction, bro. It was attempted murder on the police in prison. The assault I was just in the hole for, riots, knives, moving guns, phones, fighting, warring, the murder that put me in prison before that, all the stuff I did on the streets, the juvenile hall, the camps, the, the hitting the teacher. Like, I got a trophy here and there. I got a couple good things I did. But the bad outweighed the good. I was like, wow, bro. Like, what did I do? And so when I came out the hole that time, I was like, I need something, man. I need something here. And I, so I know the only thing that's here is spiritual, bro. Because everything else I've been putting here ain't, ain't, ain't benefited me nothing, bro. And so I came out. But, but you know how it is, bro. I used to be like, man, Christians, man, that's weak, man. God is a crutch. Y'all a bunch <laughs> of pussies. I, 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 I'll go extra on them. And I was the type that was like, if you got, man, God ain't real. I got a tat on my belly that say, uh, survival's my religion, lost soul, with a busted up cross, like all broken up, just to be disrespectful to God right. and religion. Because I, I felt like if there's a God, why am I going through this? But so I came out, I came out of prison. I mean, I came out of the hole and I started dipping off into, into the little uh, uh, religious services. So I went up in um, like Buddha. I didn't really get it, so I left that service. I crept up there again. I went in with the Muslims, uh, and and not a diss, but for the the church that I went to, the Muslim church I went to at the time when I was seeking, because I know many great Muslims, many great dudes, uh, but they were just too angry. Like like it was more like one of those the blue eyed devil, whoa, 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 and and. I know blue eyed people and they ain't devils to me. So <laughs> I couldn't relate. I couldn't, I couldn't fit in. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. But when I went up in that, at Christ, the, the, the Protestant church, the Christian church, like when I walked in, the fruits were displayed. Hey, welcome. How you doing? And the words just made sense to me and I found a home instantly. So, but it was a process because here, you got to keep in mind, I have built up this image um, of just 
being the ultimate convict, man. I'm not going to run out on you. I'm not going to tell you my, my track record was in, impeccable for 25 years on the level four yards. Uh, I parole GP, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. But, um, Oh, I forgot my point, man. I kind of drifted right there. Um, well, you know, you came out of the hole. You came out of the hole and all of a sudden you went to the, right. you went to the different services and you went to the Protestants and that's yeah, where you got the, you saw the fruits and that's where kind of rank the resonance came through to you. Like it, it made sense. Yeah, I, I was leaning to a point, but I drug out the additives too long. To <laughs> back to the Forgive me, guys. That's but, wisdom. That's no, wisdom. I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember it. Like the minute I press in Zoom, I'll be like, oh, that's what I was going to tell her. <laughs> we'll get that on interview number two. But no, so, right, there you go. So the thing, oh, by the way, excuse this, my wife is starting a, a reselling business. So like all their clothes and stuff, like she's getting her business on, I'm proud of it. But um, no, no, anyway. This is my bed, my bedroom. So this one, <laughs> it's okay. Right, right. It's all right. That, that's where the magic happens. That's man. right. <laughs> so uh, no, but it was like, so now, now I was I was falling in love with this this peacefulness, this uh, it just took something away. And so, but the thing was, is oh that's that was my point. I had created this image, and, and lived up to the standard of being, you know, uh, even though I wasn't a cripple of blood, but I, I was, I was respected because of the work that I put in. The, the when there was racial riots, I was on the front line. And somebody did something, blue, blue, blue. I was with the business, but. Um, the whole thing is, is that um, I had created this this image. So now that I, I wanted something different, I didn't know how to go about it. Because these same people expected a certain MC. They didn't expect the MC like, you know, or, you know, God, what you got for me? Or, or you know, the good me. And so I, I was ducking out into the chapel. Like, I wouldn't take a Bible <laughs> with me because I didn't want to take a Bible. Like, it was like that, you know what I'm saying? Because we were the same dudes before when dudes would walk by with a Bible, we, we would actually say stupid stuff to them, man. You going to church? Okay, you will see if God set you free, bro. Ooh, ooh. You know, like just stupid <laughs> stuff. So here I am, I'm going up in there. But long story short, um, I just stayed open. I just, I read the Bible, I stayed open and the words set in and, and you know, I don't want to be cliche with the certain um, Bibles. I don't even want to say cliche because the Bible will never be cliche. But um, God supplies the increase, you know, and it was just kind of that situation. He had been placing people in my life. Um, I kind of feel like when I look at my story, it's like um, I put myself in so much harm's way. Um, and, and I went through a period where, uh, like, I had five knockouts in a row. I had more than that, but, like, I had five straight fights where I was just knocking dudes out. And... Uh, I, I ain't never been stabbed and I've been in many riots. I've never been shot and I've took off on the police. I caught an attempted murder on the police. Like I was constantly winning. <clears throat> and and while going through it, I just thought, you know, nobody can see me, man. This is what's up. I'm MC from Orange County. What's up? You know what I'm saying? And that's really how I thought. But in hindsight, like I know that God had his hand on me, like a fact, period. I'm not that good. I'm not that lucky. And I know, I know it's kind of like God was watching. And and he's like, bro, you got you got. I gave you everything you need, but I can't bless you in the mind state you're in. I can't. I can't. You you said you doing drugs. You you just did a line. You just smoked weed. You just you know. Manip I can't. I can't bless you. But I didn't. I didn't know that at the time. I just knew I'm doing me. But it's like the minute I I, I really said, you know what, Lord, uh, bro, it's you. 
everything came off, man. And it, and it became, it was almost through the blessings that came behind that and the avenues and the safe, like from that point on, a riot happened, I was in my cell. A riot happened, I was in my cell. Whatever's going on, I was over here in class. Like he just kept me safe. You know what I'm saying? And um, it's, it's just a crazy thing because um, I, I'm supposed to be in prison. Dan, who you just interviewed, like by all intents and purposes, by man's law, we should be in prison. And I always tell people, but God had a plan and I'm, I'm right where I'm at. Where, where I'm supposed to be because when I submitted and, and, and I gave my life to Christ and, and I started walking in obedience, it was like he literally said, like I, I was about to say, through his actions and through his blessings, like now I can work with you. Now your mind is wet. Now you're wet clay and I can mold you again. Your heart's no longer hardened. And so he just chipped away at me, man. And he sent he sent my wife as, you know, Lala, but I, you know, her nickname Momo for me, like a lot of people know her as Momo. But um, I asked and that's another thing I asked God, like all the women in my life, understandably, could <laughs> six months, year, year and a half. But after that, prison is like wearing tear. Man. It's like, and, and I had no date. It's like, bro, I ain't going to take care of you forever. I'm gone. So I was like, Lord, man, just send me somebody that can deal with this. If they deal with me here. When you let me home, I, I'll be with them. Just send me somebody that can deal with it. And he sent my wife. And she rolled out the last nine years, nine and a half. She likes to be specific, like nine, nine years, six months, and four days or something. <laughs> <laughs> she rolled it out with me. And, and, and you already know how me and her rock, man. That's right. I'll never dog my wife out. But um, so those were some of the things I went through. Um, it wasn't easy because it, it was like a process. Um, like, again, I wasn't from, from a gang. So, like, me backing up probably in, in honesty was probably easier than a crip or a blood or somebody telling their homies, Hey, I'm done. But, but the standard and expectation that I had set amongst the people around me, I had a lot of movement cause I had been in this certain prison a long time when I, when I was going through this change and changing. So I would walk past cells and homies be like, Hey bro, Hey, take this knife over to the homie, you know, whoopie whoop and what, you know, sell whoopie whoop. And normally I'm like, I don't even need a description. Uh, you ain't got to tell me nothing. Just give me a cell number. I don't need the additives, the pleases, none of that. I'm a convict. Give me the knife. I go like, hey, that's from your homie, bro. And I'll keep pushing. That's the kind of convict I was. Like, I'm going to help you. If you want to sell, I'm going to do whatever you need because I'm out to sell. I'll pass with I don't care. But now, like, I'm trying to go home. I'm trying to be a man of God. I'm trying to be a husband. And so these same people that countered on me, now they're like, hey, bro, can you take this to, nah, homie, I'm trying to go home. And that was the hardest part because the same people that, that would, would slide me weed or, or help me out or send me drink or all this bad stuff, when I said I'm trying to go home, they all looked at me like, oh, bitch ass nigga. When I would tell them, no, I'm not going to pass that. They wouldn't say it, but it hurt, man, because these were the same people that I would run across the field and try to like tear a police head off with. And now that I said I'm trying to go home, now you're looking at me like I'm a, a bitch ass nigga. You ain't saying it, but you're like, and so I had to retrain everybody. I had to retrain everybody I came across. Will you pass this? No, I'm trying to go home. Will you do this? No, I'm trying to go home. They'd come up in my ear talking, man, this old bitch ass dude over here, excuse my language, but let's keep it real. This old bitch ass, I started cutting people off. I started controlling the input that go in my ear. I started controlling the people that are in my circle. 
because that's one thing I never had. I never had boundaries. I never had a fence. Uh, there's, there's an analogy I use, and I know I'm rambling. You can jump in any time. But there's an that's analogy good. I use with the job that I do right now, bro. And I'm like, if you had a house, let me ask you, Mike, you, you got a house. Um, would you want fences around it? Your property? Keep my animals would in, you yeah. Want walls? Yeah. I mean, I have to do it just for my would animals, you, yeah. Right, right. And then do you, do you got a lock on your door? Yeah. Your house? Why? Well, to keep the animals out. No, to keep the, to keep, you know, just, I mean, I've been, I've been ripped off up here, even out in the country, you know, people come and steal stuff. So, yeah. You know, say right. So, right. you do it. Thank you. And, and that's the correct answer. I mean, that's why everyone does it. It's to protect what's inside. We love what's inside. We cherish we the material and the, obviously the people. But why is it that we, we don't have no fences around ourselves? And that's the thing I didn't understand for a long time. So if you use that analogy that I, I put a fence up, a wall, a, an alarm, and a lock to protect just what's in my house, just my property, bro. Right. But I, I don't have no de defenses up to protect me. So anybody with a bad attitude could come up and drop some stuff in my ear. And I'm so young, dumb, and wild, I'll run with it. Oh, yeah, he did what? Let's go get him, homie. You know what I'm saying? But it came to a point where I started understanding my power and getting drawn back to, like, who, who, who I was, my identity in Christ, who I was when I was young Matthew, before right. the world hit me with these things, and I didn't know how to respond. And so I lashed out in all these different ways. So I finally was able to make it back to 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 who I was. And the way that I was able to do that is to start saying, okay, look, this is who I am. These are my abilities. I rap. I'm, I'm, I think I'm personable. I can do this, this, that. And I started catering to what I'm good at. And then I started operating in my own power. And, and it was hard because like everybody say, I don't care what no one thinks. You hear people say that all the time, but every action they do is due to external pressures and people watching. And, and I learned this because like Mike, if me and you were sitting here, and, and viewers excuse my language if, if some of y'all take this offensive, but I'm like, Mike, quit acting like a bitch, bro. And me and you just talking right here. You'd be like, man, I ain't no bitch. Shut up, punk. And we just clown, whatever. But now let four people be standing here. And I'm like, Mike, quit acting like a bitch. Who you calling a bitch? A totally <laughs> different response. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like people say they don't care, but there's so many different intricate pressures that drive us to do some of the stuff we do if we're not comfortable with who we are. And I thank God that he gave me an identity, that, that I found an identity in Christ, you know what I mean? I was able to slowly, it was a long journey and it still is. I mean, you know, you know the story, there's highs and lows, there's peaks and valleys. But the, but but, the thing um, that you did, the thing that you did is you changed that internal narrative. You changed your internal <laughs> narrative because you didn't have one before. It was like, there was no narrative. It was just all, it was just whatever came that day is, how you lived, but now you so yeah. So now you set this internal narrative and like, hey, I'm gonna put these boundaries up and, and I'm, I'm gonna start like limiting my contact or I'm gonna eliminate those contacts that are not edifying me. And you begin to practice I mean, like, Right, I mean, think about, think about this, like your, your memory card, like what you, what you putting on your memory card? Who are you allowing to upload stuff onto your memory chip? You know what I'm right. saying? And and when you when you take it and you put like everyday life analogies to it and apply it to like who you are on the big scheme of things, it's like who who am I letting you know plug into me? What's in my history, man? 
Cause, because whatever I'm putting in is going to come out. The same way, like, and I'm not blaming Ice Cube, but the same way in WA <laughs> and all them, it influenced me. So what, what I was putting in eventually had to come out. It's just, right. it's, it is what it is. It's, it's like scientific, man. So how did you go from that to get involved with, you know, Dennis and Larry and, um, and then um, Scott Budnick? And oh, yeah. how did that come about? Because, so you said 2006 about is when you went to that service, about that time, or the first, or yeah. 2006. And then, so you have this time period of what, however many years, so from the time that you went to that first service, the process service, was it 2006 or was it after? The first process? Oh, service? it was well after. Okay. It, it, oh, wait, wait, wait. When I you, went to my first service? The first service, the Protestant one where you said that, like, it resonated with you. you know? uh, that, that was like, give or take 2006, 2007. Okay. And so it was, it was, it was a slow process. Like, it, there was the, knowing from that letter that my mom sent me, that was instant. Right. That the catalyst, the letter was the catalyst. So there was an instant spark that the light finally went off. Like, what am I doing? But now the process of saying, what do I need to do? Who am I going to be? That took some years, man. And I didn't finally get baptized and go all in until 2010, April 2010 at Calipat on Ayard. So I was in Calipatria State Prison, got baptized in a horse trough, man. They brought out a horse trough, <laughs> filled it up with water. Oh, yeah. Right, looking like Tombstone, man. And I came <laughs> up in there, you know, and, and did the uh, did the baptism and, and, and gave my myself to the Lord um, with that outward expression. And, and it just, it's been cool, man. It's, it, it's been a, a cool story. Um, there were falls, like, to the point, like, I, I was still going to church and still getting high, you know what I'm saying? I was going to church high, you know? And so um, it, it, it's... It was just a, it's a walk, bro. You got to walk it out. And, and you know, you get convicted on certain things and you, you uh, the Lord disciplines you on other things and you, you kind of grind it out. Mm. But that's my thing. Like a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to go to church because I still get high. I, I still, you know, ain't, ain't nobody going to be ready. And, and if we're talking about the Lord, you're always going to be a sinner. So there's no right time. Even if you quit getting high, you're still a sinner and no sin is greater than the other. So right. what are you waiting for? You know what I'm saying? So that's a message to anybody who's like, I got to get my life right. No, nah, come as you are. <laughs> but so being a part of the church, I asked my chaplain, I'm like, look, can I, can I write a gospel rap? He's like, yeah. I said, can I perform it though? He's like, yeah, you write when you can perform it. And, and his name's Adrian Estrada. He was our, our free uh, pastor that came from the street, uh, free staff. And so he did that. And, and I did a song and that's the song forced in the fire. That was the first gospel rap I ever wrote. I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember that one or, yeah, I know. Yeah, I sure do. Yeah. I remember you in your prison blues yeah, yeah. and you were there rapping it. And it was a one right. of Dennis's events. Right. Was it one of Dennis's events? Yeah, of course. That's what I'm leading up to. Yeah. So um so I was in this walk, like you said, and um so I changed it. Uh it had an instant effect, bro. It was like the rap in the church changed that whole yard's church. Um it was already great. God, God, obviously God was moving and, and God added me to that. And it opened the door, like people that didn't even like church, but they wanted to come hear someone rap. And we had the beats and the systems and all that. So we ended up having two services. We had to break it down and lessen the time and structure it. So there was three services because so many people started coming. It, it was like really cool wow. transformation. Um, we had a great choir. It wasn't all me. I'm not saying it like that. We had a great mm -hmm. choir, great pastor. 
and just the vibe. But uh, so as we developed, I started writing more and more. I gave up the gangster rap stuff and the thug life stuff and the prison raps and all that and started rap rapping about the transformation that God gave me, the, um, you know, my testimony basically on rap. So anyway, one day they're like, next week, X-Fest is coming in. Dennis Martinez in the training center. I'm like, who's, who's this? Who's this funny looking white guy that looks next <laughs> Right, so, so Dennis Martinez come in and they bring in the X-Fest. So this is like, we're on a level four yard, man. Like this stuff doesn't happen, but what he did actually changed the game and the narrative, some of the narrative for prison and how they, what they let in and how it goes. Because these guys came in and brought like BMX with half pipe ramps um, skateboarders, arm wrestlers, motorcycles, Harleys out there like doing burning rubber on the yard and stuff. So they turned the yard into a park. And for that whole day, it was just one day, one first occasion, um, <clears throat> the prison was like a park. I wasn't looking over my shoulder. I was just so enthralled with what they had going on. And the way they brought the entertainment and wrapped it with the gospel, I was like, man, I can do that. And I, I looked at each of them, I'm like, Bob Lancaster was there. Um, Larry Johnson, Dennis Martinez, uh, man, a, a whole crew of people. And um, I said, if they can do that, I'm gonna do that. And I got a Dennis. I'm like, man, can, can, can I rap? He's like, man, come on, come on up here. And he let me rap. And it was the, I, I, since a kid, I, I, I would be in the, in the cell rapping into the mirror because I always <laughs> loved music. I never got to get on the stage, never really had a mic, never really had too much of nothing, you know? And, and so he gave me that opportunity and, I, and we got the footage of it, like you can see it on YouTube or whatever. But um, And I'm going to post so that too. I'm going to post that up as well. That's what's up. Yeah, it's a cool video. It's crazy, man. I can't believe how far it came. But so I knew that I could do that. If, if these guys could do it, I could do it. And that was my motivation. And if you watch any of them YouTube videos, you'll, you'll, you'll see, you could see and hear the transformation and how it affected me. And so with that said, uh, I just started chipping away, started staying out the way. Um, I mean, I don't know, it was, it was a hard fight. I went to the board, I got denied five years. I went to the board again, got denied three years, went again, and finally came home after 25 years. Uh, uh, I don't know. Where did, uh, Scott, where did Scott Budnick, uh, was, Scott, was Scott instrumental in your release? Did he have anything to do with you being released? Most definitely, um, not, not, <clears throat> not firsthand, like, me and Scott talking and coming up with an idea. But Scott, I, I made it to Lancaster Prison right before I, um, I eventually got my date. So I was at Lancaster State Prison. Um, Scott, they got a program there called Pause for Life. So Scott Budnick came through there. For those that don't know, Scott Budnick is a movie producer. He did movies like The uh, Hangover, uh, Hangover yeah. Old School, all that stuff. And he eventually started a nonprofit company called The Anti-Recidivism. Uh, after visiting some youth in juvenile hall and realizing the 15 year old he was sitting next to had 200 years. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Nobody's that expendable, especially not our kids. So he started our company, which we'll talk about later. But so Scott came on the yard and he brought Common, the rapper with him. So him and Common were on the yard and we, we all met up and we were talking and he was talking to guys uh, in the Pulse for Life program, which is a program that they introduced where they bring dogs into the prison and, um, guys train them and they become yeah. service dogs. It's a really dope program. But so I met him there and just got wind of what he does, what ARC is, et cetera. Um, and then eventually parole. So when I came home, Dennis Martinez from the training center 
he was like, uh, you get out, I got a place for you. And true to his word, uh, when I got a date, I was like, man, they, they let me come home, bro, what's up? He's like, I got you. So my wife came, picked me up. Um, that's a whole nother story there. Uh, the ride home and all that stuff. But so I made it to the training center. Um, I did six months there. Uh, it's, it's a transitional home, faith-based in San Diego and Spring Valley, California, where I was able to, to really just sit down, decompress from this, this prison journey I was just on for 25 years and get like my social security, everything in order, lined up a job. So by the time I left, I had a job, a par, and Dennis was already grooming me to uh, how to work ministry out here, how to uh, be involved in the community, et cetera. And I just took his lead. And a year later, still on parole, fresh out after 25 years, he got me back into Calipatria State Prison. And I was going there and me and my wife ended up getting a brown card, my wife did. And we went up in there uh, on the weekends, we were teaching victim impact and uh, giving life back to lifers, two separate curriculums, which eventually, I'm just trying to parlay this into uh, Scott Budnick. Just, so all this work I was doing in the community, the work we were doing in, in the prisons, um, eventually a job opened at ARC, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition for a Life Coach. And so I applied for it. And because of the work I did, a lot of it was on social. They were able to see that I was active and, and really about the business. And they hired me on and I've been working there since. So I'm a life coach now at, at the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. And you write, you write curriculum. I mean, you do, you're, you're writing the curriculum that helps people get ready to get out and how to reintegrate, correct? I, I am. It's, it's, it's an awesome experience. Um, it's insane because uh, the, the cool thing is, is that it, because I've been there, it kind of gives me a read on uh, like characters or the need of, of the group because every class could be different. So it, it, it kind of helps. Um, breakthrough in a way that I think like um, somebody without the life experience of having done that amount of time or gone through the drastic changes that I went through that, that, that they could give or actually be able to read just off of like book smarts, you know what I'm saying? So right. Right. I think it's a great quality that ARC has that they're using uh, people with life experience, people that have, have done the time. I think it's more effective, man. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And just, and just um, tell people about Dennis real quick because they heard it from Dan and they heard it from you. Um, Mm -hmm. so just tell me about Dennis, you know, who he is. All right. Dennis is the guy that used to lie to the girl to get the money, to get the dope, to get the needle, to get the hotel room. And that's all he was about. He's going to laugh. Y'all don't get it. But that's one of his sayings, man. That's I used right. to lie to get, right. the, get the girl to get the hotel room. But anyway, no, Dennis is a great dude, man. Dennis Martinez is a, a former world and U.S. championship skateboarder. Um, from the 70s, uh, a good dude, man. Um, was a top of the world. I think, uh, I believe it was like at age 16, 17, he was making $40,000 a month. And that was yeah. back then. So that's like the equivalent of whatever. A lot. He was <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> he was born. And he's 17. So he was just throwing money around, caught a drug habit, and, and lost everything, man. Down to the point that even his world championship trophy, he, he, he plucked it off. And he ended up being homeless, eating out of garbage cans, a drug habit, um, even to the point that he was possessed at one point and saw and went through some things that just are out of this world. He can tell you better than me. But by the grace of God, he was saved. Um, by the grace of God, um, he, he, he wasn't only saved and like, okay, I'm good. 
he understood that I'm saved and somebody else is going through what I went through. So he started with, um, I believe Larry Johnson was there at the time and, and some other people, I don't know all who, but he created the training center, which is a faith-based uh, transitional home and started creating opportunities for people coming home and people on the streets with drug problems um, because he, he, he knew that, you know, rehab just ain't enough. You know, yeah. he needs some guidance with him, so, yeah. you know, and so he was smart enough to mix that. And he's one of the few face faith uh, facilities that, that are actually around. Um, but with that said, Dennis, uh, I got to give Dennis his props. I mean, he did the, the curfew sweeps, the, the gun buybacks. There's so many um, things that he's done. He's such an intricate part of the San Diego area. Um, but he's just been a, bit, uh, a great friend to me. And he's, he mentored me. Like everything I know, and I'm not claiming to know much, but everything I know how to how to function and how to squeeze myself into a situation and make myself available and allow God to work with me, that he really taught me that, man. And and he's never switched on me, never changed. He's a really good dude. So anybody watching this that want to support Dennis, seriously, man, shoot yeah. shoot him some bread, shoot him some time, whatever, man, Dennis. That's good a good man. guy. And that's how we met. That's how we met. I was at Tony's house and I called up Dennis, gave him a crank call. He didn't know me. And then, um, bam, <laughs> uh, I told him like kind of the vision for icon. And, um, the next day we were meeting at Starbucks and I heard your story. Right, and I, then remember that. I think it was like three or four months later is when <laughs> I met Scott, I met Scott Budnick on the beach and I had to get like six lifers and Dan and Dan. And, um, and there was also John Lowry and Dennis and John's wife. And were you there that day at the beach? When we all met. No, I, I didn't know. I didn't even know you met Scott. Yeah, I met Scott because he called me and, and Dennis was supposed to get a place for him to eat. And I can't remember what happened, but, but Dennis was running late. And he said, hey, man, could you get a place on the beach for, for Scott? I'm like, I got about a half hour. Let me see what I can do. And um, there's a place over there on, on the beach. And um, my buddy was a the manager there. And I was able to get that back patio right there on the boardwalk. And, um, and I met him, John Lowry, John's wife, Dennis, Larry. Hey, real quick. Let me get this to my wife. Collect call from sure. Trip. Sure. I don't want to see nobody hanging. This means it's live and we're not scripted anything. <laughs> uh, oh. Get it? Cause I gotta send him ten bucks. Sorry. Hello. It's part of life, right? That's sorry. Not <laughs> I'm sorry, man. That's not. That's not maybe edit that man. that's okay that's okay hey you know what it's live and raw live and raw you know see and um i can't keep moving man you know how it is that's right you know and this took on a whole different thing that i which is better because now it's not just about music it's about being able to tell the stories of you know anyone who's gone through that system come back out the other well, side yeah. well that's the thing like never will i minimize what we do because no matter how hurt we are, if we hurt someone else, we still wrong for hurt. So I'm, I'm never like, you know, well, he went through this, so it doesn't matter that he hurt this person. No, it, it definitely matters. Right. But we're dealing with broken people, man. You know right. what I'm saying? And we, we haven't done what's right to, to fix what's broken. You know, we haven't made the correct efforts, man. And, and by the grace of God, he crept into your life, he crept into mine. Um, you know, he, he does what he does. But even for those, like, without God in their life, with, with, without non-believers. Like these people still have, this, this demographic still has 
to the right to learn, uh, for lack of better words, how to fix themselves, how to not be broken. So like, as much as I love God, save not Saul, and I'm pushing, <laughs> I'm, put, I, I'm always gonna push the gospel, but I'm always gonna rep God, and I'm always gonna stand for, for what's right and, and be grateful for what and who he's put in my life. But um, like, my job isn't even associated to uh, Christianity. It's, it's, it's a job, you know what I'm saying? It's no different than the, the man that go, get up and go to Burger King, but I'm blessed to be in a position where I can really um, tap into the souls of people and, and tap into the hurt that people have and really try to make them see um, that they're broken. But yeah. most broke things can be fixed, man, with a little ingenuity. And, and, and it's a cool thing. This one thing I want to set out I want to say this to all all the people that are watching this mic that are on icon and following you and, and they still gangbanging or know somebody that gangbang. I want to put this thought in your head. Um, like the average person, uh, there's always an extraneous circumstance. Like somebody just literally dad was just mafioso and they grew up in the gang and it is what it is. But for the most of us, something happened where we all, was something was broken in the home and we ran to the streets looking for what was missing. And then I found camaraderie hypothetically in you, Mike, because you were broken too. And me and you became best friends. And then Billy over here and Jamal came and we started the gang and all of a sudden we banged out. Or we just meet you, I just meet you. You, you know all the ways that you can join a gang. Right. I meet you, you put me on the set, I'm, I'm banging you. But the thing is this, think about this. The average person was like 12 to 16 or whatever joining the gang. And the reason they did it because they they were under duress. Something there was a lack in their life that they were missing. So it's understandable. You were missing something. You found something to fill the void. It was negative, but it it was it was distorted love to you. You thought it was love, so you roll with it. Okay, we got that established. My point is this: is that when I go into prison, and I, or when I go back into like the juvenile camps, we have 20, 30, 45 year old men that are still gangbanging. And they got this mentality like, you know, this, this, this who I am. But think about this. You're holding yourself to a vow you made under duress when you were 12 years old and you've made an ill decision to say, I'm gonna be a Crip blood, SA, whatever, South Side or Northerner. And here you are at 40, still holding yourself obligated to this decision you made under duress. How, how crazy does that sound? Yeah. It's crazy, but I, I get it. I get it, but I think if we can start painting a picture to, to make people really see what what they're latching onto would be a huge difference, right. would, would be an eye-opener. But there's still the, the effect of the loyalty. I mean, but you know, it's you, hard to get over you, your Your story, though, and that's what's great about it, is that you've taken all that bad, turned it around for good, and you give people hope and inspiration that, you know, if they want to change, it's possible. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that they're going to not have challenges, you know, with the politics in prison, depending on how deep they are. But yeah. if you can get to someone's heart through your story, because like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to a marriage counselor who's never been married. Right. Like what's, I'm going to think like, you've never been married and you're counseling me. I'm not going to listen to you. Right. And so right. when people hear someone who's, a reentry program specialist who's never been in prison versus someone who's lived that life, did 25, caught a bad case, who has remorse, and who has this new heart about him, 
that's that's going to, I said, you just plant the seed. You plant the seeds. And I'm that's sure true. that you've got people you've seen who, because of your testimony, who have, have changed their lives and who are now, you know, doing better, maybe got out. I mean, I, I, I can't, I, I mean, mean I, we don't have time for all that part of it, but I mean, you've affected people's lives, correct? <laughs> I mean, I pray so. I mean, there's, I, I do a lot of. Don't be modest. Don't be modest. Don't be humble. Because I mean, I know your thing is you did it for God. God did it through you. Okay, God did it through you. Oh, but sorry, you know we. No, no, I I get what you're saying. I mean, I believe I have, yeah. But I mean, I haven't seen all the all the fruits of my work, and I'm not really chasing to see it. I just hope that it happens, and God provides a way, whatever that person's lane is, man. Like for real. But a beautiful thing, Mike, like you said, uh, I had. I had two different guys say the same thing in two different places, man, two different prisons. So I went in and um, it, it's always a trip because I did so much time. There's not a prison I'm going to go to where I don't know somebody that's, you know. And so when I walked into, uh, I don't even remember the prison. I think it was Calipat and some other, whatever. But um, they see me double take like MC because they see the clothes. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, baby, this can be you too. But they're really excited to see me like, bro, this fool got out and they know and not on no extras, but my, my prison record was pretty impeccable and, and would match the best of them, so to speak, if we're talking, you know, gibberish. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> Nonsensical so, gibberish. But, but so they know, though, bro, if, if, if I could do this and have the attempt to murder on the police in the prison, the, the assaults, the this, the that, and get out, there's hope for them. And they, both of them said, two, two of them said the same thing that really moved me and touched me, man. He said, MC, man. If you got out, I can get out, bro. You're hoping the flesh. And I was just like, mind blown. Like, that was powerful. I was like, wow. And I didn't really realize, I knew me coming back into prison was effective, but like that put it on another level, like what it means for these guys to have walked the yard with me and seen some of the stupid stuff I was into or been in it with me. And then to see me come back on a whole different page, laced up with the Lord and like pushing. Because even though my curriculum isn't, uh, faith-based um the one loophole is, is is if you ask me well what did you do Man, I, I went to church bro and and then it gives me a free reign to answer it because i'm just answering the question that they asked right so even though um, my curriculum isn't faith-based i'm able to always preach the gospel and put it in there and, and explain what the lord did for me and if they receive it they receive it i don't browbeat or none of that um i just try to be a, a conduit between old thought and new and, and that's all I ever ask my guys is just be open to an idea because we're so boxed in of what we can't do because we're hood or what we can't do because we're here or there and we place these limitations on ourselves. So um, it's crazy. But that's but, a powerful story. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I didn't even get to the, I didn't even get to the part about, you know, your present music, you know, I mean, I'm looking at the questions and, um, you know, we got across what you've been doing since your release and, and working with Scott and Dennis and, um, you know, so let me, let me ask you this. If you had to name like one thing that's wrong with the system that could be fixed and that should be fixed first, what, what would you say that is? That um, it, it, it shouldn't be based on punitive measures. The fact that you're stripped off the street for whatever you did, that's your punishment. Anything beyond that is excessive. The fact that you were removed from society that's your punitive punishment. The rest should be about what can we do to fix it? Rehabilitation, whether it's through 
educational things, whether it's through spiritual um, adventures or adventures, or spiritual, experience. you know what I'm saying? Through yeah, experiences or Bible studies or whatever. Yeah. But that's what it should be. Our prisons do not need to be um, warehouses where we just stick them up in there and, and, and lock the door. It need to be. Uh, I was talking about this the other day, and I, this will probably get me like stabbed the next time I go into prison. <laughs> but I think every every prisoner, every single prisoner, period, whether you got five days or you got fifteen hundred years to life, uh, Mando, you got to get education. You got to get GED. You got to get a high school diploma. You have to go through self-help. The problem is, is that the system is so fractured in different ways, bro, that a lifer, watch this, a lifer has to jump through, I mean, he did nine times out of 10, took a life, but he has to jump through so many hoops of self-rehab, uh, rehabilitation, self-help, education, um, having all the right answers, the right verbiage when you go in front of the board, being able to connect the dots. Like, yeah, I didn't just kill him that day. I killed, I killed him because... This happened here, this happened here, and it started here. Like, you got to know everything to get out. But yet, if I have seven years, I can smoke weed the whole time, knock everybody out, never take a self-help class, learn to be a better criminal, get laced up by my OG homies up in the Bay, and come out, and, and I'm like 500 times worse. Right, right. And I just spent my whole time just working out, and I'm coming out with all this criminal knowledge, What's that? <laughs> so it's like, what, what are we doing? The punishment is you're off the streets. There's no need to make it so this man can't go to yard or can't get this or can't do that. All that is extra. And all that does is create a hostile situation. So to answer your question, I, I think we need to turn our prisons into colleges, into schools, into, into healthcare type places. Um, and then we'll make a difference. Because the people, one thing we don't understand that They'll come on with political campaigns um, about tough on crime and and fear, and they'll put fear in the people, and 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 the people will go in and 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 vote for all these right. these things. But we created that environment, institutional racism. First right. thing they ask you off the bus: who who do you ride with? What race are you? Make sure that you understand that you are separated from every other race. How come it's not just coming and going to sell? You in prison. Well, like I get it, there's a rich history. <laughs> it's not it's not gonna change like that. But I just wanted to state the point of this this institutional things that uh propagate um the way that the system is right now. Like well, you know, and that's what that Dan, Dan hit on that yesterday too when we were talking, and um, you know, he gave me the statistics that if you take someone who the the Average was 77% recidivism over a three-year period from the time people get out. Mm -hmm. But if you take someone and put them through the college program, like they did at Ironwood, and now it's been expanded for a two-year college degree program, over a 14-year period, it was less than 0.9%, less than 1% recidivism for people who have gotten a two-year degree and get out of prison because now they have an education behind them and they have opportunities. And that... And I thought like, well, you know what, like, and what Dan's doing, he got certified as a HR specialist for recruitment and placement. And I said, well, Dan, I said, think about it. If we could go into places like Home Depot, and this is what they did in Portugal, they decriminalized all drugs, right? Mm -hmm. And when you, when you realize you got a drug problem, you can go to the government and say, hey, I got a problem. I need help. And they will help you. They'll put you into a program and then they will help you start a business once you've, you've met certain requirements. 
And then when someone else comes to them, they'll put them with you as an employee and they'll pay a portion of their wages until they get to the point where they can have their own business and they prove it. And so now, you know, crime across the board has dropped like 60 something percent. Intravenous drug use over 60%, heroin use over 50%, like all these statistics, you know, just by decriminalizing it. And like they said, the way America does it is the best way to do it if you want a system to fail because we're the widgets, we're the pieces in the puzzle, right? So whether it's drug rehabilitation or prison, both those systems are growing, they're not getting smaller. So obviously we're doing it wrong because if we were doing it right, we'd be at a point where like, there's like no need for NAAA and there's it's all these things because, you know, and you wouldn't have drug rehabs and you wouldn't have sober livings and you wouldn't have prisons and, because it would be working. So we're not doing it right. We're not teaching people how to rehabilitate. And being able to do that, you look at how much society as a whole would benefit, right? Because if you took away, look how much money goes to the legal system, not just the prison system. You have the DAs, you have the public defenders, you have the whole system leading up to that, right? Everything that goes along with the courts, the court reporters, the, the you know, expert witnesses, the juries, the, the getting the juries there, like every single dollar that gets spent from every part of the legal system that has to do with criminal activity, criminal conviction, all that is not just prison or just the jail. It's everything that goes along with that. And then if you took that out of society right. and said, hey, you know, because he said the, the big drawback was people would say, well, how come, you know, the, the guards were picketing one of the prisons, he said, saying, well, it's not fair that I have to pay for my kids for $2,500. You know, I can't, no one's paying for my kids to go to college. Why should this criminal be able to do this? Well, it's like, because he's someone here who's supposed to rehabilitate. And if you rehabilitate him, now all of a sudden society is better when he comes out because now he's productive, he's paying taxes, he's helping his family, his family gets off welfare, he's taking pride, he's part of the community and all these benefits, and then the cost of the legal system shrinks. Right. Well, well the thing is this, um, um, any, any business that was modeled like after a CDCR, um, with the numbers of recidivism, the, the violence, the uh, all those things, it would be out of business. Right, right. It it, it would, you know, your, the, your numbers aren't matching to show the progression we need to even invest in you or keep you going. However, because it's prison and... and it's and the opposite. It's exactly the other way. Well, yeah. That's how you make your money. If, well, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're prison, you know, that's how they make their money by, we're the widgets, we come back and bring a friend, right? That's how right. they make their money. Well, you ran down the list. I mean, look how many people are eating off of this. And, right. and I'm not saying every person that's in it is like, oh, keep them in there so I can keep my job. I mean, some people just are court reporting, you know, they're just doing their thing. But when you look at the, the scale of it, so many people are eating off this. And then for us as a society to think, um, you know, screw them, they don't need nothing. We have a stake in this because these are the same people that are gonna come home to our environments. And like even me being an ex-murderer, an ex-felon, I don't want no killer next to me. I don't want no thief. I don't want no crackhead next to me. And I don't mean that disrespectful to those with addiction. But I don't want, that, that's not what I want in my environment. So how do we prevent that? Of course, by outreaches that we do, Hog Mob Ministry does, the West Siders do, that Dennis does, that you do, things we do out here to help. But on the on the inside, there has to be a change too, because these are the very people that are coming home to us. They are coming home. And I, I will give CDC um, 
credit, whether whether it was uh, uh, I don't want to forget that. Hold on, let me write a note because you asked me something and I didn't really get the answer. Okay, um, <laughs> sorry. So, but but it 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 behooves us, man. And I can't believe I just used that word. It behooves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to to really to really hone in on it, man. What kind of you, there's that old saying like you can judge a nation by how it treats its prisoners or something. Mm -hmm. Like what 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 are we bringing to them to make them better so that they're no longer victims? And and you mentioned a good point um, when Dan said that at Ironwood they had a college thing and this and that, and and he mentioned the recidivism rates for for a guy that has like three, four or five years the recidivism rate for him to come back is like 70%. For a guy that did, had life without and got commuted like Dan or a guy like me that had life with the possibility and got paroled, the percentages is like 1% in the first year. And by the third year, uh, a guy that did the amount of time or an ex-felon or killer came out, by the time he had his third year, it's like a 3% uh, recidivism rate. And, and there's a big disparity, but the disparity is two things. It's twofold, I believe. Um, one is because you have to go through self-help. Some people did it because they wanted to. Other people did it because it's a must to the board. But because everybody that was had that amount of time went through self-help to get out and to be able to talk to the board to be able to get out by, by a byproduct of it is that you did the work. Right. Even if you didn't like it and it pissed you off every class you went to, you were in there and it was seeping in. It was happening. So when we come out having known this, we, we don't reoffend, And then it goes back to my first argument. Some things should be mandatory in prison, period. Right. You do this, the incentive is you get this because then we're fixing and we're making people face some of the things that they did. And then that number for the short termers, the 70% recidivism rate was surely dropped behind open new doors of, uh, of thought or new windows of opportunity for lack of yeah, I mean, I, I, But I, I did want to say, no, I did want to say real quick, because you asked the question I, and it hit me, I didn't answer. You said, did Scott have a role in um, <clears throat> me coming home? So the anti-recidivism uh, coalition um, <laughs> and they I felt younger um, it takes your brain longer to develop you don't think rationally long term etc and it's been scientifically approved so so I fell under that category the last time I went to the board they took it into consideration and I came home um, was it just that law I don't think so I did a lot of work I know God had my back but that law um, Definitely real, real quick, you, your, your connection, the connection stopped right there. So as soon as you start talking about Scott, everything you said right now kind of got fuzzy. So real quick recap that about Scott. From the beginning of Scott? You're just when you started picking up that question, because right after that, the, the, the connection got unstable and it kind of everything you said was kind of muffled. So from the point where right. you were readdressing that question about how did Scott play a part? Okay. You can hear me good right now, though? Yeah, you're good. Okay, cool. Yeah, so the uh, answer, uh, you, you had asked if Scott uh, Budnick had played a role in me coming home, and um, he, he did. Uh, 
the, the company ARC has, we, uh, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition has created like 18 different policies um, to alter laws and sentencing and, and really change the, the structure of in, um, incarceration and sentencing. So uh, 261 came out, it's a Youth Offender Act. And um, so it forces the board to no longer just say, hey, you did a drive-by, kill somebody, you know, whatever, uh, go away. You ain't going nowhere. So they can no longer just say, hey, you killed somebody. They got to look at you for who you are, what you've done from your commitment offense, and then also take into account, <clears throat> excuse me, the hallmarks of youth, which is irrational thinking, uh, lack of long-term thinking of consequences and all these other traits, which have scientifically been proved that men don't really mature until they're 25 years old. Mm -hmm. And so because this was scientifically proved, they, they required that everybody 25 and under that goes to the board, the hallmarks of the use must be considered in their case. How old were they, to, you know, were they old enough to really be rational? And so that affected me dearly and, and I was able to come home. So they, they did play a role in my freedom without a doubt and definitely played a great role in my future and who I am today. Um, so I just wanted to share that because you had asked me if, if Scott helped in any way and I had met him previously, but the laws that um, his company, our company now uh, created uh, helped me come home. So. Wow. And that's like coming full circle. You know, that's full circle. <clears throat> there. And you've got this great it's life, a wife, you've got a great career. You enjoy what you do. You're always busy. And, um, you know, and then you have the music, you know, then you have your music. I mean, we haven't really got right. to the music part of it. I mean, it played a big part, but your whole story and then how music's played a part in that. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So, you know, on, on this, I'm gonna have to break this up into two interviews. We're gonna have to come back and do a third one and, and, and focus on the music because now everyone's heard your story. You know, I, I want them to hear the music part of it because that was originally how I planned on Icon, you know, getting out there, but now it's, right. it's better, it'll encompass all that. And I'd still like to make it so that we could have a show that has, you know, musical talent for people who can't get on, you know, traditional shows like American Idol and The Voice and, and right. do a, a show where you can compete against other people who are eliminated from those possibilities because of their past, but to be able to hear the beautiful music that people like you make, you know, and, and I think it's amazing. Well, I, you know, from day one, I thought your concept was dope. Um, I'm actually surprised it, it isn't further along because it's such a great idea, but I'm, I'm glad you never lost your passion despite, you know, naysayers or, or whatever the case might be that you're still pushing. And, and I'm here because I, I believe in you, bro. Um, I don't know. Um, but I, I want to say something, too. Like, I don't know how much time we have. As much as you want. Everybody, know, everybody knows somebody in prison, man. Especially if you're in California. You're affected some way, somehow. Um, we need people to, to be examples. We need people to reach back inside. We need, we need volunteers. We need people that understand being broken. Like, the thing that gets me sometimes is like, and I've even had guards say this um, in agreement with me, <clears throat> and I really appreciate it, but um, everybody has a moment where you made a left instead of a right and you got away with something. Like, and I'm not talking about murder. I mean, I, 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 everybody doesn't shoot somebody, but I'm saying just in general, nine, tens of, nine, nine, out, of, right, nine out of 10 of us, uh, could have probably could have landed in prison for 
for something. So let's not forget that the only difference between a lot of us is that we're the caught and you got away with it. And, and when you got away with it, you were able to probably get past that 25 year old mark and kind of figure your life out and smooth it out and X out who you don't need in your life. We just didn't make it to that point. It doesn't mean that we're disposable. It doesn't mean we should be thrown away. Um, a lot of us have hard exteriors, et cetera, but inside we big old teddy bears. And, and these defenses was put up as we talked about because of the brokenness of our society, because of the not being able to ask the right questions, not having God in our lives. Um, and so like my request to, you, to anybody listening, like if you know somebody, write them a letter. If you know somebody, be an example, accept the call. If, if you can help on either side of this argument too, if you can help victims uh, of crime, survivors of crime, like when, remember when I told you the dude asked me like, if you died today, what, what proof do you have of your existence? Like I, I pose that question to everybody that's listening. What footprint do you leave when, if you died today, what would they say you did on this earth? And for a long time, all I had was destruction. And I said, okay, when I realized that, and I realized um, a pastor said this one time, you got the, 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 the date here when you were born. I can't control that, 1972. You got the dash, and then there's another number at the end. I can't control that dash either. I don't know what I'm checking out. The only thing I can control is the dash. And so again, what, what, to the audience, what are you gonna do with the dash? You know, and, and my hope is, is that um, it's just small steps, man. Like give a little, and it don't necessarily even have to be prison, just in life. Like if you want to homeless, if you want to hit a children's hospital, but be active, man. And, and, and I noticed when I started to apply myself in prison and, and God really crept in and I made him the core of my being and I started being obedient to these, these thoughts, um, even in prison, like this big racial divide. A uh, 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 old white dude would be trying to push a wheelchair by himself to medical. I just walk up behind him. Where are we going, OG? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I just wanted to be of service. Right. I would see somebody struggling, moving their from cell to cell, moving upstairs, and the whole day room sitting here watching this guy struggle, carrying all this property up the stairs. I jump up and help him. See an old man who can't clean under his bed because he got old knees. I jump under the bed and, and clean out his whole cell for him, his urinal, everything. And I just wanted to become that type of person. And I think once we start making it less about ourselves and more about the totality uh, of, of man, then we, we start seeing a different picture and we start changing the narrative. But if everybody's all clamped up, I can't help, the world's crazy, in fear all the time, all we're going to have is what we have, you know? So it's up to us to, to change the narrative, like you said earlier, Mike. And I'm glad there's people like you that are are... Like, you don't have to be here, bro. You didn't have to create this platform. You didn't have to hold on to this dream for three years since I've known you. Like, you could have been let it go, but you know that this platform is something that can reach people, that can change people, that can uh, bring new windows of thought to people. And so you stayed with it, and it's coming to fruition, bro. And it's only going to grow as long as you stay in obedience with, with what the Lord is telling you, bro. Exactly. So that's why when you ask me. Yeah, man. You know what? And I, 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 I <laughs> I get paid to talk, so I'll probably run in my mouth. <laughs> no, no, no. And I wanted to, like you said, <laughs> you, you are one of those people. Now, it wasn't that you wanted to, but now you are one of those people that helps. You are one of those people. Yeah. That's your nature. It went from, you know, it wasn't your nature. Then it became your second nature, and you disciplined yourself. Right. But that, now it's just your nature. It's who you are. You don't have to think about it. When you see somebody in suffering, 
if you can help, you help. And if, right. if you, and if, and if you right. see someone who has a missing piece of a puzzle and you can help them find that piece or you got it yourself, you'll give it to them because that's just how we feel we're supposed to live our lives. And that's, that's the way I felt, you know, I, I did one year at George Bailey and, um, that was enough for me to realize I'm not a badass. And I said that to Dan. I said, I realized I don't ever want to go back to that place. I'm done. And um, right. it's not to say that I haven't done stupid shit since then that I, you know, mm. that's the truth, you know, and there's a lot of, we, could, we all could have got caught. Like you said, nine out of 10 people right. could have or should have been in prison. If you examine the whole life and the things that they've done, they just didn't get caught. Right. And when we, if we can make people cognizant of that and change the way people think about people coming out, that's that's well, look, it, it it'll be the, it'll be the same person that never got caught for adultery that never got caught for drunk driving and got all this smut in his history and i'm not judging him because you just like me you were trying to figure it out and you made your errors but it will be that same person that knows that i did this 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 and that but never got caught but now i'm in a position to judge you and i'm gonna judge you because you just stole a candy bar you're nothing you're a thief like that, it doesn't make sense to me. It's more like, why did he steal a candy bar? Why would this guy risk his freedom over a candy bar? Let's look at the motive behind it. You right. get what I'm saying? Right. So that, that's the, we have to alter some of our thinking, man. If, if we're going to even say that we're human, if we're even going to say we're down with humanity. And so if we can start changing some of these narratives and open up some of these, these, these new windows of thinking, then the natural vibe, look, to become a, who I was, it wasn't like, yeah, I told you my story. I was born a squared, <laughs> you know, lived in Orange County, right? But when, when I got off track, I, I didn't become like the A1 shooter, Mr. Gangster, Mr. Knock him out. I practiced. I stayed in this, this lane of sin for me. If you don't believe, you could just say you stayed in a life of crime. But I stayed in it, and I got better at it because I practiced it. I learned it and I watched and I asked questions and I excelled. So for the person that's sitting here, whether you're in prison or whether you're on the streets or you're in a rehab or a group home, and it's looking at this big picture and saying, man, I can't do this. It's all I know. It's not all you know, because you, you weren't always in that circumstance you were, you're in. Whatever it is, you got better at it to be, till your situation became too much and you, you're at wherever you're at. I don't know what you're doing. But now the thing is, is, is the same way you got there is the same way you get out of it. Small steps, slowly learning new outlets, new ways of topping, putting that fence up around, you know, your get down, locking your door, man. Can't nobody just come up in here. Bro, somebody on my, my Facebook talking riffraff, deleted. I don't need you. <laughs> I control what's in my circle. Right. No, it's, it's true. We really got to learn to protect what's ours. Because if you don't protect you, then... You become scabbed, scarred, hurt, and that's what you have to give. Right. All I have is my scars to give you. Until I fix them, until I'm healed, then I got you something good to give. I got something good to give to you. So that's right. You do. You have a lot. You have a lot to give to give. You know, you do. And um, I think that's what but like, you you know, resonated between our friendship. You know. Right. So uh, and, and truthfully, man. Oh, go ahead, brother. Well, I was gonna say, no, I'm going to finish up and then I'm going to get to the last question. So finish up this and then I'm going to, okay. I got one last question for you that I'm going to see how you answer it. And, we'll, um, and, and, and I know you, I know how you're probably going to answer it, but, um, but go ahead and finish this up and then I'll ask you the last question. Uh, you know what? I don't even know what I was going to say. We can run that, that <laughs> question and 
if we need to run around too, we will run around too. Because honestly, um, I kind of wanted to get, uh, I mean, we, we just freestyle it and I like that about you, but I also wanted to get a little deeper into um, some of the experiences and maybe we can do that another time of what I went through in prison because I think people don't really know what, what prison is about or what it means or what it does to you. And prison does right. two things to people that makes you better and makes you worse. Like you're not going to come out the same. So, like, I'd, I'd like to share some of that with you, like, oh, go sure. a little more in depth. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to break this up into two interviews. This is going to be two interviews, and then um, we'll come back with a third, and we'll hit on those things, and then maybe delve deeper into the music and, and the inspiration and how, you know, maybe more about the religion, you know, too. Like, because right, right now we got the kind of the full story, the Reader's Digest version, and it's already going on two hours, and, um, and we can do another two hours easy, you know, and I look forward to that. And so... Yeah, absolutely. Hours? What's that? Two hours. It's 11.05. That, that was a good two hours. And we could probably go another 30 minutes. Oh, I'm just oh, how you answer one question. What'd you forget? Okay. No, I just got a tag. We go into a birthday party today, okay. and she was like, anyway. You're all about family. That's what I'm tell you. Like, I was like, oh. I but you're about family, and that's great, you know. So, so here's what I'm going to ask you this one thing. If you had to, if you were able to go back and talk to 12 year old Matt, like before you hit that teacher, before, what would you tell that 12 year old Matt that could, that you think could affect him? What would you tell yourself? Bro, I would go like this. I'd go, Matt, listen to me. I'd say, Matt, listen. I'm sorry, the door opened. It threw me off. I was about <laughs> to go in. Okay. I'd be, I'd be like, Matt, listen to me. Things are going to come in your life. You're going to hit some speed bumps. They're going to seem like mountains. And you're going to think you can't pass them. And you're going to look for, in the middle of that storm, when the rain falling on you, you're going to look for any shelter that will help you. But all shelter ain't good shelter. And that rain ain't going to last forever. You know what I'm saying? Uh, four years of high school. I, I, I saw your future, and you didn't appreciate it. You thought you were grown, and you left. You, you, you dropped out. Um, those are four years, unlike any other four years in your life. Like four years of high school is different from any years of your life you'll never get back. Like if you dig in and dream and, and, and believe in your dream, there's nothing you can't become. And um, that, I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, because I, I believe it, if, if a person can get on their own square and put that fence up and really know who they are, you don't have to worry about people liking you because the right people will like you for just who you are. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to reach out and do stuff to, to have people like you. So and yeah. it might've sounded corny, but uh, that's what I would tell myself because I think the only difference is belief. Like I, I knew I was talented. I, I felt I've always had a way with words. I felt I could always fit in a situation, but uh, I didn't believe it enough, man. And I think belief in self is, is, is the seesaw or whatever, the middle of the seesaw. And if you don't believe you're gonna fall one way and you believe you're gonna reach your mountaintop, man. So, well, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, a, I believe through people like you and, you know, and, and, and Dennis and Dan and, you know, Jake, I'm gonna talk, uh, Jake Sellers, you know, Jake? Oh, man. So, yeah, so hey, I'm gonna love that story. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna right. interview him next too. So he's next up. And, um, <laughs> You should have got your tentacles on. 
Right. right. You got your, your hands on all, like all the dudes you name are like, heck of a story, man. They all heck got a heck story, of a story, man. And they're going to give hope. They're going to give hope. And that's the main thing I want to show people. I want to, I want to show people who are going down that bad road, that there is hope. And I want to show society what people can do when they're afforded a chance to change. So there's, you know, there's two groups of people. Right. There's, there's the people that, that through these stories that hopefully we can stop heading down that road by going and talking to people, talking to groups and telling people about your childhood and my childhood and you know, all the things that happened and, and all the things you just said. There's those people, but there's the people, you know, society as a whole, who we can change the way they think and change their internal narrative about people who are in prison or getting out of prison. Because like you said, almost everybody has somebody that they know who's been in prison, been affected by prison to some degree, form or fashion. Right. And we want to change that. We want to change how they look at people. And so that's, that's, that's my whole mission. You know, second chances, like we all get second, you know, we, God give us third, fourth, fifth, 10, hundred chances, but we should at least be willing to give our fellow man or woman the opportunity for a second chance in life. What they do with it, that's up to them. Right. We can't control that, but. I mean, all we can do is be our best example, man. I, like, like I, I believe totally God supplies opportunities daily for us to become our better self and, and to work in our best version. And it's a matter if you seize those opportunities. It could be something huge from a dude, obviously in need, like got one shoe or something, or it could be something as small as just a, a lady walking by and say, hey, your hair looks beautiful. Keep it pushing. That's you right. know, It doesn't always have to be a big miracle thing you did or a huge event. Just be, be the person that you would want someone to be for you. And great leaders create more leaders. So it's like just trying to find your lane, man, and just be active. And, and when I come on here, by no means do I say I'm perfect. Is my life perfect? But I strive for that. And I, I want to be the best version of myself. I want people to, um, when I walk in a room, I want them to feel my energy. When, when they speak on me and I'm not there, I want it to be something positive, man. I want, I want my life to matter and count for something. And that, that's the hope that through competition shows like Icon that we can inspire people to be exactly who they should be, where they are at, because the need is everywhere. So, and, and that's what you're, I mean, that's what you I don't do. know if we're in it, but. I, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to play a song on the outro. And I, so which song do you want to play I, on the outro? Can I say one? Yeah, yeah. One thing before you. No, no, for sure. Go ahead. Play it. Yeah. I just want to say, I just want to say to the, to the victims and survivors of crime, um, me personally, I'm sorry for what I did, um, especially mm-hmm. to the, the family of my crime, number one. Uh, I, I, I don't know if they know. I don't have contact with them, but I don't know if they looked on Facebook. I don't know if they researched me or looked for me or whatever. I'm sure they know I'm out. I, my prayer is that they know that I'm out here trying. I can't atone, you know, make up for what I took from them, but I hope they know that I'm out here trying to prevent it from happening again. And, and I'll work tirelessly to the day the Lord called me home to be an example um, to try to help and, and just really push what's right. And wow. you know, I'm fallible. I don't, I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow I could have a bad mood and do something stupid. I don't know, but Lord, forgive me if I do. And y'all forgive me if I do as well. And let's keep climbing. So, Man. Bless <laughs> you're, you're trying to make me cry and shit here right now, right? That's what you're trying to do, but that's beautiful, man. Well, that's, I, I, I didn't go into some certain stories because I didn't want to cry today. <laughs> well, okay, next time, bring our, make sure we got Kleenex with us, right? We have some Kleenex with us and we'll tell sad stories. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to, do you mind if I play like, I got, I got, I got it queued up here where the um, forged in the fire in prison. 
you go uh, ahead, out, is there anything else you want to put? Well, you know what? Honestly, you can play it. I don't care, but I, I don't net just so you know. Like, it, it was just, I was in prison. Right. I used the instrumental and, and played it. But it, as long as we're not profiting off the money, I think we'll be no, okay. No, no, no. I'll, I'll link the video up to this video. So on the outro, what song do you want me to play on the, out, the out, outro here? Which one of yours? Uh, You can play Friend Guy. The video, video. Uh, I don't know. Okay, folks. Well, Matt, let me tell you this. I, I really want to thank you for um for being uh, on the show today, and um you know, I, I, I'm blessed to have you as a friend. You know, I just thank you for everything you've done and your team. Always doing, and, um, and uh, I know you're gonna help me bring a lot more people on the show too that we can talk to. You know, and, and we're gonna come back to this again in a month or so. All right. That's All what's right, up, man. man. I'm here for you, bro. Oh. I know you are. I, I appreciate you, you so much. So here, I love you here too, Mike, man. So here's our friend God, and this is an MC, and this is the outro. Oh my it. baby. That's it. Save my that song. Ministry. So here's what I'm going to do. I can't, so just so, hold on. I was going to see. That's me. Who's that guy? That's you. <laughs> That's my boy. That's my boy. You still look good out there rapping and jiving back there. You look good. <laughs> Even in your closet <laughs> right there. So um, I'm going to put up all the links for you. So real quick, like tell people where they can get a hold of you. And I'm also going to put it up on, on, on the page. But go ahead and get real quick. Just give yourself a quick shout out. And any, anything coming up that you're going to be doing shows at? Okay. Well, first, I, I, I'd, I'd rather prefer to shout out uh, my two ministries. So you, you can check out hogmob.com. That's Hog Mob. It's an acronym, Hooked on God, Ministry Over Business. And you can check out the West Siders, Urban Outreach. Um, West Siders is an acronym. The West stands for Win, Equip, Send to the Trenches. Um, and it's all about uh, uh, just touching base, man, on the gravel and, and, and spitting the gospel. Uh, again, my name is MC. If you go online, it's E-M-C-Y on Spotify. I only got a couple songs out on Spotify. I got things in the work right now. I don't have a lot of material out there for you musically, you guys, but uh, you can check me out again. EMCY on Spotify, Pandora, EMCY on Facebook, at one EMCY on uh, Instagram, and, e and EMCY on YouTube. So I don't have a lot of content on there. I'll be first and foremost, but I got some big things in the plans right now, um, and, and I'm going to be shooting some videos soon. Uh, a couple other things in development. So we're going to be at you, man. I just be trying to get the foundation right, man. All right. But man. check out all the websiders, fellas. Okay. All right, man. Thanks, Matt. Love you, brother. All right, everybody. Always, thank man. you for another yeah, issue of the episode of Icon, where we believe everybody deserves a second chance in life. And thanks for listening. Have a great day. Take care. Icon. Amen.
Happy birthday to whoever's birthday it is. All right. Happy birthday. Love All God. Right. All right, man. Nate.